Tonight, we're going to look at the true story of a couple who couldn't stop making each other angry. They wanted to make it work, but they just couldn't stop triggering each other, and they didn't know why. This may well also be the story of you and I reacting in the same way to particular things people say to us and say about us. We're not only going to look at what happens when specific boundaries are crossed, but why it happens. Could a few concepts from a series of 18th century texts be the missing piece that, in tandem with modern psychology, provides the antidote for one of the most common problems plaguing human relationships? It may sound far-fetched, but the actual implementation is so simple and so intuitive in hindsight. And it could not only free us from a lot of interpersonal conflict, but from self-induced misery as well. Seems worth checking out. Stay tuned. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Swedenborg and Life. We're going to be looking at a practical tool today that I think has the potential to make life a lot better. My name is Curtis Childs and I'm the host of the show. And if this is your first time here, this is the show where we look at Emanuel Swedenborg. He was an 18th century scientist who had, in his mid-50s, what may be the most extensive set of spiritual experiences ever recorded. And we're trying to see, did he really find these deeper truths about life that are going to help us navigate our own lives better in the present? And if you the show moves fast, if you feel a little bit lost at times, check these out to get your bearings. Uh, this is the long version. This is a short version of what the whole thing is about and the, the broader story there. Tonight, Tonight, uh, I'm excited because we're going to get very specific, and if you want to be a part of the conversation, get your questions in, get your comments in. At the end of the show, we do open question forum, so I want to hear what's on your mind. If you did follow it, if you have something to add or improve on the message, that would be cool because the point is we're trying to figure out the best solutions together. All ideas welcome. All right, so this is going to look at today. I mean, this not this is going to look at today. Today, we are going to look at... Uh, a psychological slash spiritual tool that I find when I use it, it immediately has a positive impact on my life. So I'm going to give it to you in the hopes that it will do something similar. And we were, in fact, given it by somebody who you're going to meet in the first section. So let's get to that section right now. Today, we're going to be looking at boundaries, but not just any boundaries. We're going to be looking today at micro boundaries. And that may be a term that is a little confusing because what is that? Initially, we can define it in opposition to, to what it's not. So micro boundaries, macro boundaries, or regular boundaries, these would be things like the Ten Commandments. Uh, don't kill, don't steal, uh, don't cheat, that kind of thing. Things that everybody acknowledges pretty much we shouldn't do. We construct the laws of our society essentially to prevent this stuff from happening. People know that those are boundaries, What that when those are crossed, we get problems. However, these micro-boundaries are another set of boundaries who may be equally important, but very often we don't realize when we're treading on them or when other people are treading on ours. And we learned about this term, micro-boundaries, from a friend of ours named Mark. And Mark is uniquely positioned to, to come up with this concept because he's got a background in both Swedenborg and psychology. So we're going to hear a little bit from him about uh, who he is. My background training involves um, 
working as a minister for 22 years in a Swedenborgian organization and um, counseling degree, a master's degree in counseling from out in California. And uh, the MFT, Marriage and Family Therapy, is a particular guild that I'm licensed in here in Pennsylvania. Probably the thing that got me into counseling in the first place was working with a couple in my first pastorate um, who had read more of Swedenborg than I did. And I realized that I needed a whole lot more training to be able to help them that I could get just from reading Swedenborg. And so I began to get counseling training, and that was when I lived in Kitchener, Ontario. So you have, he has an initial background in Swedenborg, right? But he finds when he's getting into real people's life issues, it's not quite enough just to know this stuff. I've got I've to have training in the state-of-the-art stuff. So he goes into psychology, and we're going to see, or into counseling, and we're going to see how actually both of those sets of training enable him to make what I would call this breakthrough around micro-boundaries that's going to help us out today. And he got this insight when he was observing a particular couple, and we're going we're gonna to take a look at that couple. Now, this is from a speech that Mark gave. He made this discovery first in like the mid-90s uh, and then gave this speech sometime after. So this is audio from that. Here's the couple that he learned from. About six years ago, I had a couple who were very good at what couples are often very good at when they reach my office, and that is they were good at being angry with each other. And it's very seldom that couples come to my office when they're not angry at each other. It happens occasionally, and that's always a treat. But usually they're pretty angry. And this was a couple who were not only angry at each other, but they also still clearly loved each other. And that's not always clear to me, but it was clear to me. This couple, they really were still in love, and they were often very angry. And they were so good at triggering each other's anger that... I realized this was an opportunity for me to maybe learn something because it happened so frequently and it was so mystifying to me because they seemed to be in love and yet they kept triggering each other's anger. And I do want to say, if you're not in a couple relationship right now, this tool that we're learning about is still going to be helpful and uh, can be applied in any situation, anytime. I want to say that in order to find things out about life, Often, you just need to observe life. And in this scenario, Mark decided this couple is a, is like a laboratory or it is an example of when things are going wrong. If I can just watch this, maybe I can figure something out. So here's how he began to observe this pattern. I told them that I wanted to simply observe what they were doing. And as I sometimes do, I turned my, my back to them and I said, just... Go ahead, just keep doing what you're doing, and let me just listen. I want to see if I can understand what's going on here. And so I did that, and they continued, and sure enough, um, the anger kept coming and going and coming and going, and it was a myst mystifying to me to begin with as I listened to them. But after about 10 or 15 minutes, I began to see a pattern. And as I listened for the pattern to see if it was true, sure enough, the pattern continued to, to hold true. And then before I turned around, I asked myself, this seems so simple, so simple and so easy, I can't believe I've never seen this before. And as I talk about this topic and, I'm, and explain it to you a little bit more, I'm a little bit worried about the, uh, you know, the old saying about psychology, that psychology is the explanation of the obvious by obscure means. <laughs> so... 
perhaps this is totally obvious. It seemed obvious to me at the time, and it may seem obvious to you. So what is this pattern? We'll return to it in a minute. It sounds like we're an info, you know, the infomercials that act like they're going to give you something and they keep stalling and then you have to pay to get it. We're going to give you this and it's going to be absolutely free. But before we get to it, it's important to note what tools Mark had, which enabled him to make this observation. He talks here about how it was really his background in both that enabled him to come to this. And as I continued to listen to them, I filtered back through my memory to see now, is this something I learned in school somewhere in my training as a therapist? And I could not find an example of any place in the literature that I'd read about couples counseling or individual or marriage counseling that talked about this issue. And so I realized it must be more from my training as a minister than it was as a therapist that I had some sense of what was going on here. So he realized that he was in a counseling setting, but yet Swedenborg's ideas were helping him to label this particular thing. And that's because if Swedenborg really is seeing what he's claiming to have seen, then he's seeing the underlying, uh, the foundational conditions that give rise to everything we experience in the day to day. That there's not this, here's a spiritual stuff over here, here's mental, physical stuff over here. The two are actually the same thing, and we're going to see that here. But first, here's uh, what Mark was noticing about the couple. So here's what I saw. Whenever partner A would speak about partner B's internal state, what do I mean by internal state? Internal state is not a phrase used in the world of psychology. Okay, fine. We haven't told you the thing, but we got to clarify that term first, right? What is an internal state? It's not used in psychology, but Swedenborg does use it and use various forms of it in different translations. What Mark is talking about here is an internal state as opposed to an external state, meaning a, a state of mind, thoughts and feelings versus a physical state. Uh, Swedenborg says that our thoughts and our feelings, our mind, are spiritual. So what we're really talking about here is a spiritual state. An internal state is a spiritual state. And Swedenborg backs it up here, his Divine Providence 101. As always, when we quote this stuff, click this, that you can get a free download of the book in ebook or PDF. We're just giving it away as much as possible. It is our spirit that thinks and intends. So the spirit is the conscious part of you, at least as regards thoughts and intentions he's saying here, and he moves on in Divine Providence 196. He says, since it is our mind, not our body that thinks, and since its thinking is prompted by the pleasure of its feelings, and since our mind is our spirit that lives after death, so the mind is the spirit, it follows that our spirit is nothing but our feelings and consequent thinking. So the things that you think and feel, that's, that's all happening spiritually. I mean, we're interacting with the body. The, the, the brain is not out of the equation, but you're actually, the, what is it, the qualia, like the actual experience of it in you, that is spiritual. That's in your spirit. The conscious part of you is in your spirit, very much enmeshed with the physical, but it's spiritual, and that's what survives after death. So we got a spiritual state, and we have this couple doing something with each other's spiritual state. As he said, when somebody would talk about someone else's spiritual state. So what does talking about somebody's spiritual state do? What effect does it have? We'll tell you in the next section. <laughs> All right, here we get to it, um, to sort of the fulcrum point. Uh, what does 
talking about it. And now that we've established an internal state as psychological state, your, your thoughts and feelings, the things that, that you can be in a room having and nobody knows you're having them, what does it do when somebody talks about yours? All right, here's what Mark had to say about it. So, what that couple taught me is this. Speaking about other people's internal state always, if a person is healthy, always brings up anger. Always brings up anger. If I say to you, or better yet, if your partner says to you, I know what you're thinking, admit it, <laughs> you will feel anger. Now, I'm using the word anger here in terms of what the writings call zelotypia, zeal. Anger from God, I call it. We're about to we're going to be unpacking this point for the rest of the section, but we've established when somebody labels, talks about your internal state like they know it, it causes what you could call anger, but here we're calling it what is so what is this? Zelotypia. That's a Latin word he's referencing. Remember he had training in Swedenborg. So whenever we get anything Latin y around here, we run to our friends at the New Century Edition, and our best friend Cara Dom was here to tell us what what is this zelotypia? What does it mean? If you look the word zelotypia up in a Latin dictionary, the first word you see is jealousy. But we don't think of jealousy in that way usually. It comes from these two words, which mean ardent love and a manifestation of zelotypia. Swedenborg uses it usually in a positive way to mean a passionate protection of something that you love. So this positive, passionate protection is being activated when somebody says, hey, I know what you're thinking, I know what you're feeling, when they don't. You're the one who knows it. This comes up. But we're saying that it's a zeal rather than anger. But what, what is the clear difference between zeal and anger? Swedenborg just happens to spell it out for us in Secrets of Heaven 4164. He says, anger does not exist in heaven among the angels. So this is the way Swedenborg is. We want to talk about psychology, we end up talking about heaven, because it's all interacting. Anger does not exist in heaven among the angels. Instead, they have zeal. Anger differs from zeal in that anger contains evil, while zeal contains good. Okay, but we still haven't gotten to a very tangible definition. People who are angry intend evil, this is it, people who are angry intend evil to the target of their anger. But people who are zealous intend good to the target of their zeal. People with zeal, then, can instantly turn kind-hearted, and in what they actually do, they they can be good to others, but people with anger cannot. Although zeal looks the same as anger on the outside, it is completely different inside. Did that work for you? Do you understand it now? If you don't, don't worry about it, because we got ourselves none other than a chart to sort it all out. All right, this is anger and zeal. Initially, they look similar. Let's, there's a correspondence, Swedenborg says, between both of these and fire. So if we're looking at fire, it needs some kind of fuel to burn. And initially, zeal and anger look like they have a similar fuel, but you can tell there's something different here. And Swedenborg says, actually, the fuel for zeal is goodness and love for others, while the fuel for anger is evil, hateful contempt. And how does that show up? Well, once the zeal or the anger starts to burn, the what is burning in zeal, the power behind zeal is to intend good toward the target of their zeal, meaning you might be yelling and uh, setting boundaries because you see somebody trying to hurt someone else. And what you're thinking about, the core of your energy in zeal, is the person you're protecting. 
That's what is driving you. In anger, though, the thing that's driving you is the idea of hurting the person you're angry against, right? This is revenge. This is uh, uh, the the pleasure of domination. That Do you guys see the difference there? This is, um, I'm going at you because I want to hurt you, not I'm going at a source of danger because I want to protect something. And another difference, he says, between anger and zeal is that zeal can instantly turn kind-hearted. As soon as the threat is neutralized in zeal, uh, then it dies away. But anger doesn't let go. It maintains ill will and it feels vengeful. You you continue to smolder with anger. You're not satisfied. You want to cause damage. You don't want to let it go. Zeal doesn't have a grudge in it. It just, once there's no longer a threat, it wants to make up. And it's all right. Okay, so does that make sense? That's the difference between zeal and anger. And here's a little more from Mark about it. For the most part, legitimate anger, zealous anger, is simply the anger of needing to defend oneself. Somewhat like the um, immune system of the mind. Anger is what comes up for you when you need to spit out something that's toxic to you. And it is toxic to you when another person deigns to think and speak as if they know what's going on inside of you. That is toxic to you. And it brings up anger. Toxic. This feels like strong language. When somebody says that they know what you're thinking and feeling, that's toxic to you. Why is it toxic? Well, think about another physical analogy. Think about when you get a cut. Whenever your skin is cut, there's this inflammation that happens as part of the process, or, or there can be. And so that's a boundary cross. The skin is a physical boundary. When it, Whenever anything gets through there, you're going to see this immune response. Similarly, when our micro boundaries have been crossed, we have this same kind of flare-up on a spiritual level. And Swedenborg actually goes into a lot of detail as to why there is this protective barrier around our internal state like this. You'll see he uses very strong language about how we should not judge the internal state of someone else. This is Spiritual Experiences 4426. He says, But as for inward qualities regarding the life and faith and the like, they are not to be judged. Meaning, yeah, what, what's in somebody's heart and mind, they are not to be judged. Because only the Lord knows them. So we put, we're putting our place, ourselves in place of the Lord, and we're talking about something that intrinsically we don't know for sure. A thousand can appear alike outwardly. In fact, speak alike and yet be wholly unalike as to these qualities. The motives of everyone as to those qualities can never be known. To judge about them on the basis of deeds is to be deceived. From much experience it has become known to me that people of whom the world has judged as evil as to their inward qualities are among the blessed, and conversely people whom they had judged well are among the unhappy." And he's saying this based on his own experience in the spiritual world, that he was able to see people who everybody thought, oh, this person's a really bad person, but actually, they were good. People didn't realize that they're actually doing things for good motives, even if there was some confusion or something. And people who everyone thought that is such a good, good person, no, they were secretly selfish and conniving. So he saw that on a big level, but we're talking about the phenomenon on the micro level, meaning every time we... uh, condemn someone in our minds, like, oh, I know why they did, they did this for some kind of bad reason, or that I know they're thinking this, oh, that's so, they're so, whatever, shallow, or stupid, or, or uh, evil, that we're making these little condemnations of them, and Swedenborg says, that's a spiritual judgment, you can't do that, because 
you don't know. Only God knows that, right? And you're 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 trespassing a boundary there. And as soon as I say that, you at home may be saying, "Wait, wait, we we can't make any judgment about people, so we just have to let people do whatever they want and let people say whatever they want to us, do whatever they want to us. We'll just let everything happen because it's all nope." That's not it. There's a difference between external and internal or spiritual and natural or physical judgments. This is from Swedenborg's Love in Marriage 523, also translated conjugal love at times, um, or married love is another way the title of this book is translated. The point is, in number 523, it says, The Lord says, Do not judge, so you will not be judged. In no way can this be taken to be judgment of anyone's moral and civil life in the world, but judgment of someone's spiritual and heavenly life. Who does not see that if judging the moral life of people we live with in the world were not allowed, society would collapse? What would society be without public justice and without each person's own judgment of another? But judging what the inner mind or soul in a person is like, that is, what the person's spiritual condition is like, and therefore what happens to that person after death, judging this is not allowed because the Lord alone knows it. So we can, in a murder trial, we can even go as far as to say, we believe there was intent to commit this, so you're convicted of first-degree murder. Or we can say, we think you didn't mean to do this, so you're only uh, convicted of manslaughter. We can even go as that far as to impose penalties, because we have to for the sake of society and the safety of others, but we can't say that we know for sure that the person meant to or didn't mean to. Nobody knows that. Nobody knows what factors were pushing on a particular person to get them to act in a personal way. Nobody knows what was going through their heart and their mind in that moment. So that's an extreme example, but applied in our little microwave to our little interactions in life, we can't do that. We can't say we know what's going on in your heart and mind. So we can set boundaries, and we can protect ourselves, and we can try to help, but we can't say for sure I know what you're thinking, I know what your motives are, I know why you did this. And this is, we can't, we can't get into that space of, of leading them internally that is really, only God can do that if the person lets them. Um, and this is so important spiritually that Swedenborg even talks about this being taught to kids in heaven. This is Heaven and Hell 343. Um, this is in the spiritual world where Swedenborg is describing an encounter that he had with children who had died as little children and were being raised in heaven. Several times a number of children have been with me in groups, before they had learned to talk at all. They made a soft, formless sound, as though they were not yet able to act together the way they would when they were older. What surprised me was that the spirits who were with me could not keep from trying to get them to talk. This kind of impulse is innate in spirits. Every time, though, I noticed that the children resisted, not wanting to talk like that. So the spirits around Swedenborg were like, hey, hey, do this, say this, because they just couldn't help trying to get them to do things, trying to control them in some way. I often picked up a reluctance, a distaste that had a kind of resentment in it. Once they did have some power of speech, all they said was, that isn't so, or however a little kid would say that. I was told that this is a kind of testing of the children, not only to accustom and introduce them to resisting whatever is false and evil, but to keep them from thinking or speaking or acting at the bidding of someone else, so that they will not let themselves be led by anyone but the Lord. So it's so important that in your education in heaven, even in a place where everybody's cool, right? Every and you're, you're closer to God, everything you still are taught. Don't let anybody think for you. Don't let anybody 
make you be a certain way inside because that space is so important. And when we cross over and try to impose ourselves in there, we're making spiritual judgments. That's what it's called. And Mark talks about this a little further. Thoughts, feelings, intentions, desires, beliefs, those are all internal states, aren't they? You can't taste, touch, see, smell, or feel any of them. They're not natural. They're spiritual. Your thought is spiritual. Your feeling is spiritual. Your intention is spiritual. So if another person claims by the way they talk, or seems to claim by the way they're talking, that they know what's going on in you, what have they just done? They've made a small spiritual judgment on you. And that spiritual judgment feels bad. It feels bad. So we get angry when people talk about our feelings. What we should feel, how we do feel, how we might feel, how we could feel. We get angry when people talk about our intentions. Our intentions for present behavior, our motives for past behavior, and our desires for future behavior. Those go to the will side of the mind. We get angry when people talk about our thoughts as though they know them. We get angry when people talk about our opinions as though they know them. Or they try to influence our thoughts or opinions. We get angry when people talk about our beliefs as though they could know them. It's all these micro boundaries. How do we keep track of them? How do we know if we're crossing them or other people are crossing? Well, there's actually an easy tool to help you remember them. That has to do with the shape of the hand that Mark came up with. And I asked him a little bit about how did you come up with this concept? This is what he said. As I saw what was going on, I was using my hand to keep track of the different aspects of the boundaries that I was seeing. I got to five fingers and the palm of the hand, six. And I just had a sense that there was going to be another one. You know, seven is a great number in Swedenborgian theology, a great number in the Old New Testament. And sure enough, about a month or two later, I saw the seventh boundary which was the boundary around physicalness, people's physical bodies, and what they're able to hear other people tell them about their bodies and what they know. All right, and we'll explain that right here. We got a chart of the hand and the micro boundaries that it symbolizes uh, right like this. Now, there's a lot of information. We're going to divide it up here. You see those two brackets there, the will and the understanding. These are two parts of the, the basic parts of a human mind, according to Swedenborg. Essentially, sort of thoughts and motives. I mean, I mean, thoughts are in the understanding and feelings and motives are in the will. And the will is here including feelings, intentions, desires, and motivations, right? So whenever we're saying hey, we know those better than you know those, we're crossing a micro-boundary. Uh, for, for when we say that to someone else, same thing with the understanding. If we tell someone we know their thoughts, know their opinions, know their beliefs better than they know them, then that's crossing a micro-boundary there. He says the palm is your experience of your family of origin. You know, the, and this one is sort of an outlier, but it fits right in with these in terms of the effect it has. He gives the example of if you say to somebody, oh, you're just like your mother, or you're just like your father, or, or you're like this because of somebody in your family, that brings up that same anger or zeal because your experience of your own family is something for you to comment on, not for other people to comment on towards you. And then finally, he said, like a glove, see the, the black line surrounding your experience of your body. 
what that would mean is, let's say there's a couple that's fighting about the temperature in the house, right? You can't say to somebody, oh, you're not cold, you know, you're not really hot, or you're, if you're, there's attention about what kind of medicine do you take, like, do you take natural medicine, do you take Advil, you can't tell somebody, oh, this works, this doesn't for you, because you don't know what it's like to be in their body. Uh, and that is, that's the same kind of micro-boundary that the thoughts or the feelings are. You can't tell somebody, that doesn't hurt, you're just imagining that, because you don't know. We don't know what it's like to be them, and so these micro-boundaries are there, and as Mark was learning, as we've seen in Swedenborg, there will be this reaction whenever they're crossed, but we don't know as it's not something we intuitively know. Before I'd heard of this concept, I never thought about this as anything distinct, but once I heard about it, I was like, oh yeah, but but we don't automatically pick this up. And Mark noticed that in a lot of patients that he had. And I've checked this out many times now with other couples. When they first come to my office and I see it happening, when I see the boundary crossed, even if I don't see anger in the eyes, but I often do see anger in the eyes of the partner whose just boundaries have just been crossed, I ask that person, what are you feeling right now? And invariably, they say, angry. And then I ask, do you know why? And invariably, they do not know. And that's why this concept is so potentially helpful. Because when you have people getting upset, and they don't know why, and they don't realize why they've been triggered, it's very hard to make any kind of progress. And if, like that couple he showed in the beginning, they were continually, they liked each other, they loved each other, they wanted to stay together, but they didn't realize they kept overstepping these boundaries, and that was triggering the other person. They couldn't stop even if they wanted because they didn't have this information. So once you have it, it's it's not meant to be a condemnation. It's meant to be, this is freeing. Oh, I know when, what, why there's trouble, and we know how to prevent it because you can now avoid crossing these. And there's another reason why it, why these micro-boundary infractions trigger a reaction. That's a pretty good line. And it is because it has to do with not really seeing the other person for who they are. And Mark commented on this as well. We tend to make assumptions about other people's internal state from our own. Okay, that's the big one. We tend to make assumptions about other people's internal state from our own. We project onto them what's true for us. And guess what's happening then? We're missing them and simply seeing ourselves in a mirror. I would venture to guess that 90% of all the judgments that we make about other people are judgments we've made about ourselves and we're just putting out there on other people. Do you know how frustrating that is? To constantly be missed like that? It's very frustrating. And Swedenborg also says that it's that that only seeing ourselves rather than seeing other people, that's part of a distorted mindset or part of when we're when we're outside the divine design in the way that we're thinking we don't really see what's true you know what's true and what's good are linked together so when you see things as they really are you get this empathy that comes with it but if you're stuck in what's false you're not really seeing other people you're just sort of seeing your own stories or you're seeing other people in relation to you and this is this is a clip from another episode that we made where we quoted a number but it's relevant here because it talks about our own illusions. Uh, so this is about the idea of reflection. So here's Swedenborg's description. I was just conversing with spirits and angels about reflection, to which I do not know whether people have given enough attention. And it was said that if they give it some thought, they will discover more secrets in the doctrine of reflection than in any other. When we do not reflect on the things in our own mind or our motivation, 
how we are thinking, what we are thinking, what we are doing, what is motivating our actions. Without reflection, we know nothing, except that we are, and nothing else, not what we are. On the other hand, if we reflect upon ourselves from the viewpoint of others, or allow others to reflect upon us and to say what we are like, then for the first time we are able to know ourselves. Otherwise we can never learn, but remain in our own illusions and from them reflect upon others. That last line, remain in our own illusions and from them reflect on others. That causes problems because you're not. there's not really a connection in the relationship. And there it's talking a little bit about um, reflecting on yourself or allowing other people to help you. It's not that you can never get anybody to comment on what's going on for you, but you it's got to be solicited and it's got to be from a state of help. So you're from a state of helpfulness. So you're always kind of the gatekeeper of that. And if somebody's barging in unasked for to give you advice, it's going to cause all kinds of problems. So it's this is important to clear this up to get people to see each other, to get people to stop triggering each other. And again, not just we're using couples as an example because that's where a lot of this stuff comes up. But this can be anybody uh, that you have any kind of interaction with. We're going to see a little of that in the next section. But this this whole seeing people from our own perspective is something that humans have noticed that we do. There's actually somebody who wrote these, these two books. Um, for women only, for men only. I don't know if you guys have heard them. They're like relationship advice books. But this one, for women only, this is telling women, hey, here's some things you might know, not know about what it's like to be a man. And this one, for men only, is telling men, hey, here's some things you might not know about what it's like to be a woman. Because they did these studies and they found out, oh, there's certain things that in general, of course, everybody's different. In general, men approach something this way, women approach something this way, and they found partners assuming that the other one would approach it in the way that they would, or when they said a certain thing, they would be coming from the same place they would. And just because of this simple misunderstanding, there was all kinds of problems in relationships, all kinds of drama, because you just don't realize that's not how the other person is. What When they do that, it doesn't mean the same thing as it means to you. It's cool. I've, I've, I've read them. They're good. Um, all right, so that's a little bit about that. We're going to look at the dynamic that's involved in how this whole thing comes up, sort of what relationships are, this sort of cross between wanting to be close but needing to be autonomous in the next section. But first, we got a fan video from you guys. We appreciate you sending those in. This one is cool, and it is a reading from Swedenborg over these cool graphics and some thoughts. So send yours in if you want to be a part of it. And here, we'll play a little bit uh, from from you right here. I foresee that many who read the following relations and those after the chapters will believe that they are fictions of the imagination. But I declare in truth that they are not fictions, but things actually done and seen. Nor were they seen in any state of mind asleep, but in a state of full wakefulness. For it has pleased the Lord to manifest himself to me and to send me to teach the things that will belong to the new church which is meant by the New Jerusalem in Revelation. To this end, he has opened the interiors of my mind and spirit, whereby he has given me to be in the spiritual world with angels and at the same time in the natural world with men, and this now for five and twenty years. 
I once saw an angel flying beneath the eastern heaven with a trumpet in his hand into his mouth. And he sounded it to the north, to the west, and to the south. He was clad in a robe that waved behind him as he flew, and was girt about with a band flashing and sparkling as with rubies and sapphires. He flew downward and descended slowly to the earth, not far from where I was. And he touched the ground, he stood upon his feet and walked to and fro. And then, seeing me, he directed his steps toward me. I was in the spirit, and in that state was standing on a hill in the southern quarter. And when he came near, I spoke to him and asked, What is to come to pass now? I heard the sound of your trumpet and saw you descending through the air. The angel answered, I am sent to call together the men most renowned for learning, of most penetrating genius, and most eminent reputation for wisdom from the countries of the Christian world who are dwelling on this continent, that they may assemble on the hill where you are now, and from the heart express their minds as to what they had thought. So we're calling this part intimacy, autonomy, dynamics, because as you may have guessed, there's sort of a push and pull within relationships when it has to do with that. And can they coexist? That's the question we're asking today. So we want to turn back to Mark to hear how does this dynamic show up in the people he sees? There are two loves that are in conflict in any relationship, or at least in apparent conflict. Our love for our free will our love of autonomy, and our love for intimacy. And this shows up all through the spiritual underpinnings that Swedenborg describes as well. He talks about both of these and the importance of their role. Let's look at what he says about intimacy, or one thing he says about intimacy in Divine Providence 43. He says, Divine love by its very nature wants to give what it has to others, which means to us on earth and to angels. All spiritual love is like this, divine love most of all. So there is this imperative from God to share what God has with us. But not only that, all the spiritual love, all the giving love that we can have has the same uh, same seed, same force within it, that we want to we give what's ours to other people. So that implies a lot of intimacy. However, autonomy is really important too, and there's a number that describes that within the context of our free will and its ability to free us from negative things. This is Divine Providence 97. If we on the earthly level were deprived of the freedom to intend evil and to make it seem reasonable by rationalizations, that would be the end of our freedom and rationality and of our, vo- and of our volition and discernment, so the end of our mind. We could not be led away from our evils and reformed, so we could not be united with the Lord and live forever." That's pretty important. That is why the Lord protects our freedom the way we protect the pupil of our eye. The Lord, though, is constantly using our freedom to lead us away from evils, and to the extent that He can do so through our freedom, He uses that freedom to plant good things within us. The takeaway is, freedom is this essential part of spiritual growth. It's an essential part of God leading us out of a hellish state of mind into a heavenly state of mind. You think about your your pupil. Is there anything 
that you protect more than that. And that's how important freedom and autonomy are to God. So there's going to be both. Even though you're headed to a spiritual world, according to Swedenborg, where intimacy is really, really going to increase and increase in a lot of ways. Here's a few that he describes. He talks about um, intimacy. In the middle there, you see between a person and God, we can grow ever closer to God and God's divine love, God's divine wisdom. That for eternity, we can be coming closer and closer and be more and more perfected in wisdom and love. And on the right, you see groups, communities of people. You live in a spiritual community in this life. And Swedenborg says you can even share feelings, share thoughts. There's such community and intimacy there. You feel like these are your best friends, your family. You've known them from childhood. So that gets more and more intimate. He, on the left, he says even married partners can grow closer and closer to each other to eternity, always getting closer. However, that stuff doesn't mean that autonomy doesn't also continue to exist. This is Divine Providence 45, where he lays it out. Since the goal of the Lord's divine providence is a heaven from the human race, it follows that the goal is the union of the human race with the Lord. It follows, So that's the point. It follows also that the goal is that we should be more closely united to Him, so intimacy, and thereby be granted a more inward heaven. So intimacy leading to this inward heaven. Lastly, it follows that the goal is for us to have a clearer sense of our identity and yet to be more clearly aware that we belong to the Lord. There it is. It's intimacy and autonomy autonomy right there, touching each other, both needing to be there. All of these are part of the Lord's divine providence because all of them are heaven, which is the goal. So the essential, it's essential to heaven that we both can give ourselves to other people, can experience full love to want everything that we have to be theirs, but yet at the same time, maintain our own identity. That actually by people who have a degree of separation working together and, and working for each other, there can be closer union than if there was no identity. So this, this autonomy and this intimacy are absolutely important, but there's, lim- there's limits. There's a limit to how close people can get, because otherwise this balance would, would be gone and the autonomy would be threatened. And Mark talked about this. The closer you get to another person, fulfilling that love of intimacy, the more the free will issue and the autonomy issue becomes threatened. And it is one of the functions of anger, zeal, to keep people from being too close. Two people cannot occupy the same space spiritually. They cannot do it. If there's some sense that somebody else is trying to, as as it were, be inside you, control you in some way, you are not going to let it happen. So why? Why are we so resistant to being controlled in that way? Uh, Swedenborg says that there's, there are spiritual fundamental reasons for it. This is Divine Love and Wisdom 141. There are two loves that are at the head of all the rest, and two loves that lie behind all the rest. The head of all heavenly loves, the love basic to them all, is love for the Lord. The head of all hellish loves, or the love that underlies them all, is a love of controlling prompted by self-love. These two loves are absolute opposites. So that the the most deep 
opposition to everything divine and everything loving is to want to control people because we love being in control of them. So there's a good reason why we have this gut reaction to don't control me because that is the most destructive thing that we can do is try to have power over people. Even God, who is within people and gives them everything, doesn't want power over people. God wants us to be in freedom. So that that is the divine way. So we all have this thing written into our spiritual DNA that nobody's supposed to control me. And God put that there in us because this autonomy is so important. There has to be consent in anything like this. So that is why we have, I, or I think that's why you have this reaction to whenever there's somebody trying to get to, you know, you can get close. You think about it physically, there's a perfect metaphor that you can hug, you can be as intimate as you want with each other physically, but if you were like, if your rib cages were to merge into each other, it's a beautiful thought, but you know, you'd be in all kinds of trouble, right? The, these membrane, skin, uh, you know, all the different organ systems, they need to remain separate and they need to remain intact, otherwise nobody's happy, right? So that's the same way spiritually. You can get close, you can be just this amazing level of love and intimacy, but nobody gets to be inside your free will. That's yours. And since that's going on on a spiritual level, we see it pop up in the way that we relate to each other. There are some interesting little nuances with this that we want to get into here. You know, we say nobody can know your feelings and thoughts as well as you do, right? That's why nobody should comment on it, and only the Lord knows our real motives. But what if somebody says something about it? You did this because this, and yeah, I did. Does that mean it's okay? Mark comments on it. What if somebody crosses the boundary, talks about your internal state with some degree of authority, and they happen by sheer dint of circumstance to be right? It's all the worse. You might think it would feel good, but it, it's actually worse. You know, it's somewhat like when you were little and you had a, your um, jobs to do and your job was to take out the garbage, that happened to be mine, and I was just about to do it on my own and suddenly I'm told to take out the garbage. Now I don't want to do it anymore. Okay. If somebody actually nails you, it's worse and you're more angry. Because now you have a problem. Well, you always have a problem when people are speaking about your internal state, but you have a bigger problem when they're right. Because now if you're going to, let's say, go along with it, maybe they want you to do something, you want to do it. Now you don't know any longer whether you're doing it for you or for them. And that, that's the takeaway, for you or for them. Obviously, with kids, there's time when, when you have to say, you can't put that in your mouth because you, that's really dirty, or you're going to choke on it, or you just choked on it, and now you're trying to put it back in your mouth. There has to be some rule set, but peer-to-peer, in adult situations, a lot of the times, uh, if, you're, if you are co-opting somebody like that, it causes problems, and that you don't know if you're doing it for you or doing it for someone else. This is so important spiritually that it affects divine providence. From the book Divine Providence 136, or how we relate to it, he says, what, in, what is inside us resists compulsion from the outside so definitely that it turns the other way. This is because our inner nature wants to be in freedom and loves its freedom. As I have already explained, freedom is a matter of our love or of our life. So when something feels when something free feels that it is being controlled, it withdraws into itself, so to speak, and turns in the opposite direction. It looks at the compulsion as an enemy. 
The love that is the substance of our life is irritated, which makes us think that we are not in control of ourselves and that we are not, therefore, living our own life. Which is important, and it's it's spiritually even more important than it sounds, as we point out in this little quip, clip that we're going to play from another episode about free choice. Whatever we have done from our freedom, in accord with our thinking, becomes a permanent part of us. This is because our sense of who we are and our freedom are integral to each other. I said it affects divine providence. Swedenborg says it's a law of divine providence that we have to be acting in freedom. Because when you are doing anything, people obviously can be compelled to do things. Happens all the time. People are compelled by external things. You think of oppressive regimes that make people do things. Or you think of just somebody who feels like, oh, I have to do this from guilt or something like that. You can be compelled, but it doesn't stay with you. That, that divine providence, God could come and tell everybody, you have to be good. You have to not do the micro-boundary crossing stuff. And we might do it, for a little while, because, well, God said to do that, but because we were being forced to do it, even by God, it wouldn't stay with us. Eventually, we would get rid of it and rationalize away why we don't need to do it. Only what we do because we freely love it, because we decided to do it, stays with us. That's the only way. And so, that's God's whole providence, is to lead us to what's good without forcing us, you know, just to give us the option and and work with us, but, but we have to be going along. And that same dynamic shows up in anything. If we try to mess with people's freedom and get them to do something, it doesn't become a part of them, like what is in freedom does. And another downside, just in case you're like, well, I still want to force people to do stuff, is this This leads to and brings up, and any micro-boundary crossing leads to and brings up a power struggle in the couple, as Mark described. The issue always becomes something of a power struggle. And I've seen it hundreds of times now. If a couple starts to work on an issue in my office and they start crossing these boundaries, the issue quickly gets lost and the power struggle ensues. The power struggle is over the issue. It's not always conscious to them. Sometimes it is. Who has the right to name my internal state, me or you? Me. Who has the right to name yours, you or me? You, right? It's your business, not mine. It's my business, not yours. And there's nothing more toxic to a relationship, according to Swedenborg, than a power struggle. Before we get into that, we want to say again, external states can be named, meaning it's not it's not like if somebody's hurting you in a relationship or hurting you outside of in some other, like a work relationship or something that you can't say, you have to stop doing that because that's an external state. You can set boundaries, you can involve, uh, you know, that, that's why we have laws and that kind of thing. That stuff can be named, but this internal stuff, like, I know why you're doing this. We can't know why somebody's doing it. And as soon as we start to try to tell this person who we're in a relationship with, I know why you're doing this, we start to bring up this power struggle, and the power struggle is a killer, man, and this is why, Heaven and Hell 380. Any love of control, and this is this is Swedenborg specifically talking about marriage relationships, but I'm sure it would apply to other relationships as well. Any love of control of one or the over the other utterly destroys marriage love and its heavenly pleasure. For as already noted, marriage love and its pleasure consist of the intent of one belonging to the other, and of this being mutual and reciprocal. 
A love of being in control in a marriage destroys this because the dominant partner simply wants his or her will to be in the other and does not want to accept any element of the will of the other in return. So it is not mutual, which means there is no sharing of any love and its pleasure with the other and no accepting in return. Yet this sharing and the union that follows from it is the very inward pleasure that is called blessedness in marriage." really important. Love of being in control stifles this blessedness, and with it absolutely everything heavenly and spiritual about the love, to the point that even all knowledge of its existence is lost. When one partner wants or loves what the other does, then there is a freedom for both, because all freedom stems from love. However, there is freedom for neither one when there is control. As control comes in the door, minds are not united but severed. The deeper natures of people who live in this kind of marriage clash and struggle with each other, as is normal for two things that are opposed to each other, no matter how their outer natures are restrained and tranquilized for the sake of peace. So even if, you know, one partner is all the way down and not putting up a struggle, and it seems like it's going on, if if there's not total freedom for each of them, there can't be what this marriage love, Swedenborg says, this deeper love which can become like the greatest thing you can experience. Control absolutely kills it. It's absolutely toxic to it. So that's another reason why we have such a built-in um, immune system or, or immune reaction to this kind of control because it's going to make both people miserable. There's freedom for no one, and it's and it's it's this protection mechanism that's close to our hearts because freedom is super important. I think I've said super a couple times. It's quite important to be free. And that's essential to our development and essential to our happiness, and everybody deserves that dignity. And there's other ways. We've been talking a lot about marriage stuff, but let's go Let's go to different scenarios, different life scenarios. Gossiping, you know, we sometimes gossip, and Mark talks about how actually that can often be a micro-boundary infraction too. Most of the time, people are talking about other people's business. It's almost impossible, by the way, to gossip without crossing one of these micro-boundaries. People are not really all that much interested in what people are doing when they're gossiping as why they're doing it. What they might have been thinking or feeling when they were doing it. Not so much the thing itself. You know how we talked about the Ten Commandments in the beginning as macro-boundaries? This is fascinating because there might be, in what Mark just said, uh, part of the spiritual meaning of the Ten Commandments has to do with micro-boundaries. For example, the commandment on... Uh, killing. Swedenborg says in Apocalypse Explained 10.12, you shall not, in a spiritual sense, you shall not defame or slander a person. When this is done from enmity, from hatred, or from revenge, it is murder. Meaning that's part of the spiritual sense of you shall not kill. There's a macro boundary, which is don't physically go around killing people, but there's this micro boundary on the spiritual level, which is killing somebody's reputation, and that we're engaging in that. We're also, in in a spiritual way, breaking this commandment. So, but listen, look at me here, talking about Ten Commandments, don't do this, you're bad. What's the upside? I mean, we've learned all these things that it's bad to do. Is there anything that we can do? I mean, what, what, what do you do if you don't want to cross these boundaries? And the answer is, there's a lot you can do, and it leads to happier connection, and Mark talks about it here. People sometimes ask me, well, if I'm not going to be talking about those things anymore, what's left to talk about? Well, it so happens that what works the best in working with couples and works best in all relationships is you start talking about those things more. You talk about your thoughts. You talk about your feelings and your intentions. 
You talk about your beliefs, your family of origin. When you do that, and the other person respects it by not taking it on and commenting on it in some judgmental way, guess what happens? Intimacy grows. Oh, I didn't know you thought that way. I didn't know you felt that way. So we're not trying to just cause guilt. We're trying to free ourselves here. We're trying to free everybody involved because we can go use this concept and know, all right, I don't talk about that. And when you don't and you do talk about what's inside you rather than what's inside other people, that actually makes things a lot better. It's not just that you don't make it worse. You begin to communicate better. And this is if, if this is the way things are really laid out, this must be the way communication was meant to happen. We're meant to be able, we're meant to comment on what's going on in us and other people, and we're meant to listen to how people say that, uh, talk about that, and then from that we learn about them rather than learning about them from our own assumptions, which is not really learning about them at all, as we already established. As soon as I was hearing this talk, uh, I noticed immediately this is something absolutely freeing, and, and not just for within relationships with other people, but even in my own mind. It's not that I don't, I'm not ever crossing these boundaries. I cross them all the time, and it's good for me to check that. But in my own brain, how much of our own misery is caused by crossing these boundaries? We think somebody doesn't like us. Well, that's because we're judging their their thoughts and feelings and motives. We don't know. We don't know. that You can have a guess, but you don't really know. We think, oh, this, is, this person did this for this reason, and that's why it's upsetting me so much. But we don't know. As soon as I found, oh, I can have a spiritual reason to say to those thoughts and feelings, I'm not engaging in that conversation because that's crossing a micro-boundary, all of a sudden I'm a lot happier. All of a sudden I'm not bogged down in those. It just gave me the right reason to just say no when that stuff came up. So there's freedom there. There is freedom in relationships and even in your mind in your relationship. You can think, well, this person, they, they do this because they do this because they think this or they feel this and they usually it's wrong and usually the truth is way better so you save yourself a lot of grief and it gives the opportunity to talk about what's really going on and the truth will set you free that Swedenborg says as I mentioned before goodness and truth go together whenever we know what's actually going on it's better than what we thought when we were when we were in falsity. And it just got me thinking, as I was kind of, even today, sort of applying this in my mind, it just got me thinking, oh, the world is way different than you imagine it. The people probably are having much different internal experiences than you imagine. There's probably a lot more variety. The whole picture is different. And you think about, haven't you ever thought, oh, I probably came off like this, but that's not who I really, what I really wanted to be, or that's not who I really am. Think about somebody that you have a negative opinion of, and imagine that that's a false opinion, that they, they came off that way, but that's not really what they're like. It just, for me, it creates extra space in my mental attic or whatever. I just feel this sense of lightness and of freeness, plus, and then I'll, and then I'll be done singing the praises. It's just such a solid tool to use in relationships. It's just such a clean, clear thing. I'm not going to do this because this is a way that I practice my spirituality. So thanks to Mark very much for coming up with that. Thanks to you guys for watching. Thank you to newchurchaudio.org, which is where we got the tape, the tape of, of that speech, the MP3 or whatever we got of that speech. Thanks, and thanks to all of you for watching. I'm going to cross a micro boundary here and say, I know you're all good people, 
Uh, so would you do me a favor, like and subscribe this, and I know you're going to do that out of the goodness of your heart because you want this to spread on YouTube, which this will do. If you want to help make cheeky programming like this possible and, and help get these ideas out there, please consider making a donation. Here's our little donation philosophy video, and then after that, we'll get to your questions and comments. We want the ideas and insights we cover to be available for free to anyone, anytime they need them. That's why we offer Swedenborg's books as free downloads on Swedenborg.com, and we produce this show and other content on our Off the Left Eye YouTube channel with no paywall or ads. The only way to keep this up, though, is for those of you who like what we're doing and feel comfortable giving to give. If the idea of helping others have easy access to the content we produce feels meaningful to you, please consider supporting this cause with a donation. Give if you can, receive if you need. If we cycle through this way, in the end, everybody wins. I wonder how many micro-boundaries I cross when I answer questions on this show. Let's keep track of it today and see. All right, first question. This one is from Lord Flacco. Can we give true unbiased corrections to someone if we see error in their ways? Or can we even see error in others without self-projecting? It's a great question. Practically speaking, there, it's not, there can't be that there's no place to give, uh, to give correction. Because otherwise, how is Mark, who came up with this, going to be a counselor in the first place? How is there is there therapy? Um, how is there parenting? Right. So there's got to be some room for it. What I would say is, the way that it works is to make a distinction, to, so that when you're communicating, you you get, are respectful of the fact that you don't know for sure. Um, and I think you, that can even be done with language gimmicks, like saying, "It, it seems to me." Uh, and I may be wrong, like that you are doing you are doing this for this reason. If that's the case, that's not good at it. But if it's not, you know, that's one thing. Or you can just go right to the actions and say, you know, you need to stop doing this. That's fine. You know, that's that's an external judgment. If you say you you need to stop walking across this six lane highway, there's no crosswalk, that's an external thing. Um if you try to say, you need to stop doing that because you don't care about your life, then that's a spiritual judgment. So what I would say is, you do, there's, it's, it's, life is complex and there's a lot of gray areas. You do want to step in and offer judgment. And, but I think you can do it while, with saying, I, I acknowledge that I don't really know why you're doing this. You can even say, I would think, it seems to me like, are you doing it? You could even ask like a question, are you doing it for this reason? If so, this thing. But as far as external actions are concerned, we can make judgments on those, Swedenborg says. Does that make sense? Am I differentiating those? I hope that I am. Uh, it's a great question, and, I, and I, I feel like I had an answer for it. Hopefully that came out in words. Okay, next one. Karen Land, can there also be then collective boundaries, such as the boundary of a tribe or country? I would say so. Um, I mean, Mark even talked about uh, about religious institutions crossing these boundaries. You can have a policies set that seem to be making internal judgments, and um, even uh, Swedenborg talks about, you know, in the freedom, he talks about churches overstepping and commanding people to believe. So I certainly would think that this principle would extend to the collective. Um, well, and we certainly, we, we often call that prejudice to say, you know, you, a certain group of people does this thing because they are like this. That's crossing a, a boundary on a large scale. So I would say this is scalable. It's anytime you're making a judgment, you know, 
I feel like there was some of that thrown around at this, uh, the election that the United States just went through. People, perhaps everybody's <laughs> acting like they knew why everybody else was doing things. So I think that there can be this on a larger scale. And the more that we can, I can see this as a really cool tool that, and there's probably differences in the way you'd apply it one-on-one versus how you'd apply it in the larger, but we could get in there, figure that out, and hopefully come away with a really easy shorthand because you want to contribute to the conversation well. You want to do the right thing, but it's, it's not always easy to know when and where you can do things. So the more we develop tools like this microboundary tool, hopefully that could add something positive to the conversation. So that's a great question. Let's look at the next one. Drive-by poet. So did, what did Swedenborg say about making good spiritual judgments, such as assuming the best in people and believing they must have good intentions and feelings? He actually said that that's what angels do. He says that angels, he, this is almost a direct quote, I'm probably paraphrasing a bit, but angels hardly notice the bad in someone. And if they do, they put a good interpretation on it. So it does seem like you have this good spiritual judgment because you have to, you can't just go around all the time with a blank spot in your mind where there would be assessment of motives. I think you can, and you can even like, you can fill that with positive interpretation that's probably better by default because that gets you acting, not that, and as soon as I say that, I think of people saying, well, what about, well, you're going to be too naive and too trusting. You've got to set boundaries, you've got to be wise, but in when situations where you're not in danger, I think this is probably a good place to start, um, because yeah, you've got to be thinking something a lot of the time if you can. So I, it would either be really holding that you don't know, but it may even be better in a lot of situations to say, they probably did this for a good reason. And it is interesting. I hadn't thought about that in making this show, but Swedenborg does describe angels as essentially making, assuming good, even when it sounds like often angels are perceptive enough that they know what's really going on with someone, but it seems like they also sometimes assume good where there are little gaps. So, I mean, there's something to be said for developing that as a technique as well, and which I think could act in, in concert with this microboundaries concept. Great one. Thank you. Next. Isn't love of self evil? Well, according to Swedenborg, well, semantics. So what Swedenborg calls love of self is evil. Now, some people out there may be thinking, what is, it's bad to love yourself. So we have different people using that phrase to mean different things. Nowadays, love of self would be um, like, hey, I'm a cool person. I actually, I think I'm worthy, and and I don't have to blame myself, and I don't have to have guilt, and that kind of thing, right? That's what people now would mean by love of self. Uh, what What Swedenborg calls love of self is extreme self obsession to the point, well, where you're putting your own yourself above everyone, and thinking he puts it sometimes as the world needs to serve you. Uh, and that that everybody exists for your sake. So I think what you're going to get, Zeke, is that Swedenborg is saying there's a good zeal in defending yourself, uh, right? That that's that's what's triggering. That's what you're talking about. Well, so how is that good? There's a difference between that protection of your freedom and love of self. The love of self that Swedenborg describes, as I was just saying, is this desire, is at its core a desire to rule others and make them serve you. The idea of having healthy boundaries 
is can absolutely be good because you're having those boundaries because you need to be a functional person who can end up doing good things for others. It's not like there's there is like a love of self where like, hey, you insulted me, I'll kill you. Like that's love of self. But to set a healthy like, okay, you can't you can't talk to me that way because that's just not an appropriate way to talk to anyone. There is a difference there, and some it you know it's not a simple thing. You have to tease it out and think about it some. But no, to defend that freedom that's really from God in you, that's something we're supposed to do, and we're wired that way. It's not that the ultimate, that's sort of the wisdom side of love and wisdom. It's not like the greatest person ever would just let everyone walk all over them, because Swedenborg talks about discriminate, discriminate charity is a phrase he uses sometimes, meaning you have to watch out what kind of good things you do for people, because, for example, if somebody is crossing big boundaries and relationships and harming you or harming somebody else, just enabling them isn't helping either of you because it's helping them get more and more immersed in that evil and it's helping and it's hurting you as well and hurting your ability to function and, and love and, and receive heaven as God is trying to bring it to you. So does that answer your question? I think if you take all the words that I just saw and like smush them together in some order, you'll get an answer. But hopefully I've communicated that this reaction to protect something that needs to be alive in you in order for you to achieve your heavenly state of mind and be all that the Lord wants you to be, that's not evil. Love of self is not protecting self, it is wanting to dominate. It's kind of that difference between anger and zeal that we saw earlier. All right, let's take one more. This is Terry. Do spirits have a similar relationship, do spirits have similar relationship issues as what's being discussed here, I would imagine so. Uh, there's, because we talked about that autonomy, intimacy, even extending into heaven. Um, I know that there's, in the lower areas, there's all kinds of triggering and things. I would imagine that life there has more similarities to here than you might think. He talks about us taking our minds, our lives with us, that it's not we learn how to navigate relationships here, and then everything changes. Even on an angelic level, I'm sure there's something analogous. It's not like here where you're just like, oh, neither of us were trying, and now we're in a fight, and we don't know why, and, and, and Saturday is ruined. I don't think it happens like that there in heaven, but I do think you got to work things out. I think there are probably disputes sometimes between communities that have to be worked out. I think as you go up toward heaven, the disputes are more and more, you know, amiable or amicable. What? What are they? They're more friendly um, because you can even tell that there are disputes here. You can even have in the microcosm, in a relationship, there can be partners who know how to disagree without being upset with each other. Um, and then there's, at other times, we get just triggered instantly, and there's nothing we can do. So I would say all those degrees exist in the spiritual world, but there's, uh, you know, higher lows in heaven, if that makes sense. All right, cool. So I ended all my questions by saying, does that make sense? Which means, you know, <laughs> I've got some sense-making issues, but you guys, it's too late. You already watched the whole show, so you can't turn it off now because it's the end. Thanks, everyone, for sticking with it, and next week, we are going to shift gears and look at the book of Revelation in the Bible and how the first chapter in it is actually this huge, not just a prediction, but um, a message on how we can connect with God and have the divine at the center of our life. So I will see you then. Thanks. Thanks.